Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 7. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart uh, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And when they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And then I want to stop there. We find here in this section, really, if we were to take the whole section, we would read about Herod and Herod's response after he heard the fame and the name of Jesus as it's spread abroad. But if we back up to verse 7, at this point, Jesus is the only individual who's preaching right now. John the Baptist has been cast into prison, and by the time verse 7 rolls around, John the Baptist is already dead. The disciples have been with Jesus for about two years, and in those two years, they've lived with him, they've heard the message of the gospel, they've watched him teach, they've watched him interact with people, and there comes a point here where Jesus is going to transition from disciples to apostles. And the reason we know that is because after this, after uh, Mark kind of takes a side note there in verse 14, he comes back in verse 30, he begins to refer to them as the apostles. And the difference is that a disciple is one who is a learner, and an apostle is one who's sent out, an ambassador, one who speaks on behalf of another. So an apostle is also a disciple at the same time, uh, but a disciple is not necessarily an apostle. So it's someone who's learning and who is sent out to speak on behalf of another person. This is where we see that happening. This is where that is initiated here. And it says that he called them, or he called unto him the twelve, and he began to send them out. He sent them forth by two and two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. As we look at this, I want to just title the message, Called to Labor. Called to Labor, because these men were called to labor, and those who are brought into the kingdom are called to labor. As we look at this, really what we're going to get a, a, a glimpse of is how Jesus discipled the first ministers of the gospel in his day. So we're going to see maybe some things that we should look for, and specifically as as you're looking for praying for a pastor, uh, things that you can be praying for with the Lord uh, when the Lord brings you a pastor, things that you can encourage your pastor in, and also pray that the Lord would bless your pastor to grow in. But also we know from the scriptures that Paul tells Timothy and Titus that they're to be examples to their flock or to be examples to the men that they live with. So if they're to be examples, then those that they're ministering to are looking to them and following them as they follow Christ. So we also get truths in here, whether we're talking about a gospel minister or not, just truths that apply to Christians across the board. And so the first one that I'm going to start with is just kind of right down the list, I'm, I want to kind of break the passage down and then begin to apply. In Mark 6, verse 7, says, He called unto him the twelve, 
We know back from uh, chapter 3, verse 14, whenever he first called them, whenever he first set them aside and kind of brought them into a defined group, Mark 3.14, it says he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Uh, this was what he always had in mind. He was also in verse, uh, and sorry, in chapter 4, verse 11, it says uh, that he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all these things are done in parables. So Jesus had given them the ability to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God and he's doing that specifically for them in a way that he set them aside so that they would be with him, they would walk with him, and they would learn from him, and then he would send them out. It says that he began to send, just to send as an ambassador to perform a task, and he did that two by two. It's important, really, uh, whenever we see that two by two, because uh, fellowship is important. Jesus doesn't send them out. He could have done it any way he wanted to do, but he sends them out two by two, and it's really because we find strength in fellowship. It doesn't necessarily mean the more numbers you have, the stronger you are, but it does mean that two are better than one. It does mean that iron sharpens iron. Uh, it does mean that God intends for us to be sanctified, for uh, the sanctification process to be complete in us through our interaction and through our fellowship with other people. Uh, he does not call us to be hermits. It says he gave them power. The word power there is just the word authority. He, and and, and the, the wording is he kept on giving them authority over unclean spirits. He commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey. That's verse 8. Save a staff only. No script. The word script there is just a uh, beggar's collection bag. So if you were back in that day, if you were traveling, you had no money, you took a script. You took a beggar's collection bag with you. Whenever you ran out, you would sit that out and you would hope that people walking by would give you some money so that you could continue on in your journey. But Jesus says you're not to do that. You're not going to take a, beggar, a beggar's bag with you. You're not going to take bread, no money in your purse. But be shod with sandals, and do not put on two coats. And then he said, In whatsoever place you enter into a house, there abide until you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when, you, when you depart from thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It says in verse 12, they went out and they preached. The word preached there just means they made a public proclamation that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick. And uh, as we look at that picture, I'll probably mention some of this later, but as we look at that, uh, there's some imagery in the Old Testament with anointing oil and the Holy Spirit. And so some of that may be wrapped up here, but it's also worth noting that back in that day, oil, olive oil was used for a lot of medicinal purposes. And so as they went out and they were anointing with oil many that were sick and, and they were healing them, you know, obviously some of the healing came from that authority, that power that Jesus gave them. But it's also possible that there was no sign with the oil, but the oil was being used for medicinal purposes. So the first thing we read is he called the twelve to himself. So we believe this. And the reason we believe this, maybe I should say it this way, it would be a little more accurate. The Bible says, the Bible teaches us that God calls ministers. 
God calls ministers to himself. We do not just decide one day based on our own authority or based on our own unction uh, that we would like to get the proper training to get up and minister God's word. That's not to say that a, someone who's not a God-called minister can't get up and make a good talk or make a good message on a passage in the Bible. It is to say someone who has not been called by God probably will not endure in the task of pastoring God's people. It's two different things. You know, to be a to be a pastor, uh, to be a called someone who's called by God to pastor his flock. Uh, there's a whole lot more that goes into that than getting up once a week and talking while everybody stares at you and hopes that you're bringing a good message. There is a sense in which God gives you a gift for that. But I think the calling has a lot more to do with shepherding, uh, and shepherding is feeding the flock. That's part of it, and that's a big part of it. But uh, So we believe that God calls men to the ministry. We believe that because uh, that's the example that we see. But we also believe that the minister has authority, and it's important that we understand what sort of authority we're talking about. The reason I even bring that up is because in verse 7 it says, that he called them unto him, uh, he called unto him the twelve, and he began to send them forth two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. Two words for authority in the New Testament. The one that's used here is the Greek word exousia. There's another word that's dunamis, and you probably remember that one from Romans 1, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, where it's the power, the dunamis, the authority, the power there, the power of God unto salvation, speaking about the gospel. What, what, if we're going to differentiate those two, uh, whenever you think about dunamis, what Paul was speaking of back there in Romans, it's a power that's in and of itself a powerful force. When you think about exousia, it's someone who is really exercising someone else's authority. It goes hand in hand with the idea of an ambassador, so that I speak on behalf of someone else, and my authority is not wrapped up in me, but my authority, the source of my authority, is wrapped up in something else wrapped up in another source, and specifically as we begin to talk about the, the power of a, of a pastor, of a minister, or I guess I should say the authority of a minister or a pastor, uh, we find our, our authority in God's Word. So it's no more, it's no less. Whenever I begin to stray from God's Word, I have lost my ability to claim authority upon God's people as a pastor or as a preacher. Um, it's important to remember that because there's a lot of folks, a lot of... A lot of uh, I should say maybe congregations, I'm not sure, but uh, a lot of folks get, get hoodwinked into thinking that, that when God calls a man, he gives him authority, and this authority is something that God has given directly from him to the man, and as the man speaks, whatever he says is gold, and that's that. And of course, you know that that's how cults begin every day. A group of folks deciding that this man really has a special connection with God, and so what he says, I'll do, and then you get into all kinds of mess. So I want to tell you that whenever we think about a God-called minister, when we think about a pastor, he is one who has authority from God, but his authority is in so much as he's staying consistent with God's Word. It's not authority that he just can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So I guess I should say it's not an authority that the man can push his preference, uh, but it's authority that as much as he knows God's Word, he has the authority to minister God's Word. And as I speak to you, out of the Word, and I can call you to repentance in ways that are consistent with the Word, but I can't just up and decide, I think you ought to rearrange your life in this direction or that direction and expect to have any authority at all because there's none there. It's just me. So uh, we see a good picture of that in, um, in the life of Jesus. Um, in Matthew 28, Matthew 28, 
And when I say we see a good picture of it, I mean the type of power that Jesus is talking about, the type of authority that Jesus is talking about. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and he spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And really the little phrase I want to get is the fact that he spoke about power that was given unto him. That's what it means for exousia to exist. All power has been given unto me in heaven and earth. It wasn't anything, and, and obviously Jesus was, we know from Philippians 2, it would not have been an exaggeration, it wouldn't have been a lie for Jesus to claim equality with God, but he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. And so we see in his ministry, he's one who's constantly looking to the Father for his authority, for his wisdom, for his agenda, for the words that he speaks, for the really the mission that he's on. And so he says, this power has been given unto me. In John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 26, it says, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And so again, just another place pointing to the fact that Jesus says, listen, my authority has been given to me to execute judgment from the Father. And that's the same sort of authority we're talking about, same word there that we're talking about when we talk about the authority that God gives those who are ministers of the gospel. So, he called them, he gave them authority over unclean spirits, and then he began to send them out. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to hit a few bulleted points here. Again, whenever we think about biblically what we're looking for, if we're, if we're looking for a man that God has called to be a pastor, a preacher. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And I just want to stop there. Um, I don't so much hear this anymore. Growing up, I heard this all the time. A man would get up in the pulpit and I don't know if it was an attempt to be humble or if it just was true, but he would get up and just talk about what, a, what how he just tried and tried and tried to run from the ministry. He had no desire for the ministry, but God just kept dragging him back into it. Uh, and I want you to know that according to Scripture, when God calls a man, he gives him a desire to do it. Uh, he gives him a desire to pastor his flock. He does not pull people by the hair, kicking and screaming. Now, somebody may be and may have some hesitancies about their abilities, and that's okay. I mean, that, that happens. Who, even Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? So it's not that we're saying a man is completely confident in and of himself, uh, but we're also not saying that a man uh, uh, say, well, you know what, I really don't want to do this. I don't like people in general, and I especially don't like the folks at this particular church that God's called me to pastor. But against my own will, uh, I think I better do it anyway. Uh, that's just not biblical. It sounds kind of mystical and makes for a neat story, but there's nothing in the Bible that would support that. A man that desires the work of a bishop desires a good thing. And so it's a man who has the desire because God has given him that desire. Um, well, again, there may be burdens, there may be inadequacies, but, but, but God gives men desire. Matter of fact, and you'll find if you look at that whole check there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the only self-check that the Bible ever gives a minister that's questioning or, or a man that's wondering, has God called me to the ministry or not, the only self-check that that whole list gives us is that one thing, if a man desires the work. The rest of it is an outward check where men are looking at the character and they're looking at this and they're looking at that, but that's the only self-check that they give and that's desire. The second thing, this seems kind of obvious and it might seem kind of silly to bring up, but, uh, but it's not. 
First uh, Timothy chapter two. I don't bring this up because I think you may struggle in this area, but I just bring it up because it's here. First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. Paul says, "But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man." but to be in silence. And so biblically, as we're looking at those that God would call to pastor to lead his church, it is male. Uh, God has designed for male leadership in the church. And as you get to a passage like that, it would be really easy to take a spin on that and turn it into something it's not. Really, Paul is talking to Timothy and the churches there in Ephesus because they, they generally, uh, the problem that they're having is they have passive men that will not step up and take the leadership role in the church. And so women have filled that that void, and as Paul talks to them about not suffering a woman to teach, really what he's doing is he's calling passive men to step up and take leadership, take a leadership role in the church, and not just fluff that off and give it to whoever wants it. That being said, when we think about a God-called minister, someone that God's calling into the ministry, we're talking about someone who is male. That's the way God designed it. In Mark chapter one, verse sixteen, we read that. Well, I guess it wasn't there. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Now as he walked, that's Jesus, by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, thence he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And I say that and go to this passage just to make this point that those who would be, those who would be ministers, those who God calls as ministers, are men who are interested in following Christ. These men, before Jesus sends them out the first time, have been following him for a couple of years now, and they've been learning from him, and they've been walking with him for this amount of time. Again, it might just seem obvious that if God was going to call someone to minister on his behalf, if God was going to call someone to be an ambassador for him, that that individual would be interested not just in the message, but also in the relationship. But you know as well as I do that whenever you look out just in the world in general, and then whenever you look in your own heart and think about what happens when you get a, a position of authority, uh, a lot of times those commitments, that integrity, and the character uh, can begin to latch on to more than what's really there. I guess what I mean by that is this. Another man said it this way, and I thought it was great. He said, what we do with our, our, our uh, preachers a lot of times, or I guess all the time, we put them in a suit and tie. Usually we elevate them on a podium. We give them an hour to talk, and then we tell a congregation to sit silently and listen to their every word, and then we ask them to be humble. That's pretty difficult. There are temptations there. And if we're not walking with Christ, we begin to think that this show is all about me and this is the Lewis hour and while I talk, you listen and you shake my hand and even if you don't really mean it, at a courtesy's sake, you at least give some tiny compliment before I leave and I get to go home. And that's that. If I'm not walking with Christ, I would be way more arrogant than I already am. Listen, that's not just for the pastor, but that's for you too, even though you may not feel like you have an hour for everybody to stand up or for everybody to sit down and listen to what you have to say and whatever your calling is and whatever area you have in life, if we're not walking with Christ, that's what we'll, that's, that's where our, our, uh, natural, uh, tendencies will tend to go. But again, here back on topic, uh, a man who would be called to minister God's word has to be a man that's walking with God. It has to be a man who's interested not just in giving a message, but a man who's interested in his life being influenced and ruled by the Word of God and one who's concerned with his relationship with the Lord, not just the message he's been called to preach. Although the two should go hand in hand. 
So that being said, uh, in Second uh, Timothy chapter two, we've got one more thing here. We'll move on to our second second bullet. Second Timothy chapter two, verse fifteen. Familiar verse for us. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, if a man will be a faithful minister, a faithful pastor, he's one that is going to be studying God's word. Because again, whenever we just think about what the word um, apostle means, an ambassador, one who is sent to speak on behalf of another, if I do not know what the man's saying that I'm sent to speak on behalf of, really, I'm not an apostle. I'm just a talker. I'm just a speaker. And when you look around and you see the state of Christianity as a whole in our culture, and, 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 and you look to the, even the, whenever you look over to the liberal side and even on the super conservative side where you see errors, usually you see those, or maybe I shouldn't say usually, always you see those because someone somewhere has either a misunderstanding or has irresponsibly handled God's word to make something, uh, something that it was never intended to be. So if that means ignoring something, that's what it means. If it means beefing up a particular doctrine to make it uh, more important or give more emphasis on what the Bible actually gives it, then that's what it means. But if you would find someone who would be faithful to God, who would be walking with God, if you find someone who is, who's, who's doing what God's calling him to do, among other things, a minister is somebody who's interested in knowing what God has to say. Because if he doesn't know what God has to say, then he himself has nothing at all to say. So Jesus gives him authority, and this goes back to this whole study thing, because really, whenever you find a man who's, who's preaching God's Word, I've said this already, but I, it would be beneficial to, to repeat this a thousand times, uh, the minister's authority ends where God's Word ends. The minister's authority goes only where God's Word goes, so that the more of God's Word a man knows, uh, the more that he understands, the more that he has, has uh, uh, delved into well, then the more authority he can walk into the pulpit with, the more authority that he can walk into the, pa- the work of pastoring his sheep with. But it's all wrapped up in the authority that comes from God's Word. All right, back to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. It says, He commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, that's the beggar's bag, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till you depart from that place. And I just want to stop there. Now, as we look at this, this is not anything that we're going to try to stack the deck for, or anything we're going to try to make happen, but whenever you think about it, whenever you're looking toward, this goes for your life as well as the minister's life, but we're called to find, to trust and find contentment in God's providential care. And it was no different for these men that walk with Jesus. Um, this is not anything that was going to be forever with them. As a matter of fact, whenever we get over uh, into the toward the latter part of Jesus' ministry, right before the cross, he would refer back to this time, and he would say, that was then, and now this is now, and he would make uh, another statement, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the truth of the matter is this, a minister or a Christian period will have very little credibility if they've never had to trust God and they've never had to wrestle with their own desires to find contentment in God's providential provision. It's one thing for me to stand up here and preach to you and tell you that you ought to be trusting God and that God's worthy of your trust and all these other things, which is all true. It's another thing for me to get in a bind and get to a place where I have to lean on God and where I have to trust God and actually do that for myself. 
I would lose a lot of credibility with you if I were to come up and preach a series on trusting God and then a situation comes up that's an emergency or something else in my life and I just completely fall apart and act as if God doesn't exist and everything in my message uh, is completely absent in my life. I bet you wouldn't be asking me back to preach another series on trusting God. By the way, I think that's probably one of the biggest problems in evangelism as well. When I say that, I don't mean those who go overseas. I just mean as we engage the community. I think a lot of times we give them a message that's completely inconsistent with the life that we live, including myself as I go out and talk. When I say that, I don't mean that we're a bunch of immoral pagans running around doing uh, uh, all kinds of uh, gross things, but a lot of times I am saying what we do is we kind of over-embellish what we actually do. What does it mean to trust God? How are you trusting God in your life? I don't say that to make you feel bad. I just say that for a self-check and to look at yourself and to see, do I really believe this message or is it something that I just say because it's what I know to say? People see through that stuff. And they see through that in my life as well as yours. So I'm not up here saying you should be more like me. I'm saying Jesus calls us not only to, to, to uh, uh, he not only entrusts us with the message that God can be trusted, but he also gives us the, really, we would really consistently call it this, legitimately call it this, the privilege to lean and live upon the mercies of God. In Matthew chapter 6, well, you know what, don't go there. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 11. It says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what, I'm going to stop there, even though he continues to go on there with uh, riches and material uh, wealth, but this is my point here. Obviously, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, but he goes up to verse 1 to kind of make his point, or this is where he's going to. Verse 6 is the point of the top part. He says, let as many servants as are under the yoke, under the yoke, under the, 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 the you might call it bondage, under the authority of their own masters, let them count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. You know, we could take that passage, verse 1, and we could say it this way. No, I'm not saying we ought to retranslate it, but I am saying we could say it this way. Let as many servants as are under the yoke be content with God's providential care in their lives. The meaning would be the same. And then he says this, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit these things teach and exhort. Paul is telling Timothy, he's charging Timothy to teach these things. That if you're a servant and you're under the authority of a master, that you still uh, uh, count him worthy of honor. Not for his own sake, but that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. The point is, your life is consistent with your doctrine. Your life is consistent with what you're 
saying. And then the second one is this. Don't take advantage of a believing master. Just because he's a believing master, uh, don't despise him. Don't look little upon, don't look down upon him. Don't, don't act as if, uh, since you're both Christians, that there's no authority work or employee-employer relationship like that. He says, don't do that. But rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Teach and exhort that men should be and should strive to be content with God's providential dealings. Why in the world, out of all things, would Paul ask Timothy to make sure that he highlighted this particular area in these people's lives? Well, because it's one that's not very popular, and certainly back then I'm sure it was one that was not, uh, uh, it was a very attractive thing probably for someone to come along and say, oh, you're both Christians? I wouldn't worry about it. You know, God's your God. Don't worry about your master. You're not under his yoke of bondage anymore. You don't have to count him worthy of anything. Uh, We're all one in Christ. You don't have to worry about submitting to that guy anymore. If if your boss is a believer, you don't have to worry about... working or having the same attitude that you had before, uh, he ought to be raising you up. He ought to be giving you more benefits that you're a, a, a fellow believer along with him. And so you begin to despise the man because he's not doing what a guy convinces you he should be doing. Paul says you need to teach these things. And he goes on in verse 3 and says this, If any man teaches otherwise, if any man teaches contrary to what I just said, and he consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, Here's his problem. He's proud and he knows nothing, but doting about with questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. Really what he's saying is this. When you find someone who's taken the authority that they've been given in the position that they've been given, and they begin to abuse that, Their problem is this. They suppose that gain is godliness. In other words, they suppose that the more they get, the more God's blessing them. They suppose that the more material wealth that they have or or in as much material wealth that they have is is how they measure how it is that God's blessing their life and blessing their ministry. And again, I'm not saying that God calls all people everywhere to be poor all the time in every season of life. But I am saying this. God calls all of His children to learn what it means to be content and live a godly life. He calls His children to live in such a way that they are not ultimately driven by getting a leg up, but they are driven by godliness and finding content within a life that's characterized by godliness. If you don't know what it's like to live out the message that you're trying to preach or the message that you're trying to... When I say preach, I guess I don't necessarily mean from a pulpit, but the message that you're trying to advertise to the world, if, you, if you're not living that out, it's not going to be very effective. Uh, if contentment is something that's not on your list of uh, to-dos, and what I mean by that is it's not something you're trying to pursue, contentment with godliness, then there's some other problems going on as well. Anyone who would minister God's Word must be someone who's trying to live a life that's influenced and someone who is also living under the care of God. I'm not going to turn there, but Luke 22, 35 through 36 is where Jesus looks back and says, You remember then I told you, only take one staff. I told you to uh, not take your beggar's bag, all that sort of thing. And he says, not anymore. If you only have one sword, go buy it, go sell your coat and get another sword. Uh, I'm sorry, go sell a sword and get two coats. Uh, and he continues on there and just tells them, you need to get the provisions that you need because things are getting ready to change. So, again, it's not a call to poverty. 
it is a call to contentment and it is a call to looking to God for provision. Back to Mark chapter 6. Two more points here and we're done. Back to Mark chapter 6. Verse 11 says, And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Barely I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. We learn in, um, I think it's in Matthew, that as Jesus sends the disciples out, He's sending them out to the lost sheep of Israel. He's not sending them out to uh, Gentiles right now. They're going out to Jews. And He says, as you go out to these Jews and you begin to preach the message and you come to a place to where you're being, you're being rejected, no one is accepting the message and you're being rejected, He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to dust off your feet for a testimony against them. Now, you may know this already, but this was something that Jews would have been very familiar with. This was a practice that they used on a pretty regular basis. If they had business that they had to do and they went into Gentile country, they went anywhere outside of the borders of Israel, when they began to come back out of that Gentile country, it was a common practice that they would take their feet and they would dust the, 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 shake the dust off their feet, take the bottom part of their garment, knock the dust off of that. And the reason they did that is because they said, these Gentiles are under the curse of God, they're under the judgment of God, and we will not bring this cursed soil onto our land. So as he sends the disciples out and he tells them, this is what you're to do to people that will not hear you, these people know exactly what it means. And just in case the disciples were a little confused as to what it was Christ was calling them to and what he meant by that, he goes on to say this, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. A minister of the gospel that would be faithful is a minister of the gospel that will preach judgment. And again, that's something that we don't like to hear. That's something that a lot of times we don't like to preach. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying that means uh, every Sunday we get up and we tell people how they're going to hell. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this, and this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this. If you, if you sit under the sound of the gospel and you're there and you've heard the message and you've heard the message and you've heard the message and you continue to reject that message and you can live your whole life and you continue to reject the message of the gospel, you will go to hell. That's just the truth. You say, Brother Lewis, what about predestination and election? We believe in predestination and election. I'm not saying that's the cause. I'm not saying that the, I'm not even distinguishing the cause and effect. I'm saying, as far as we know, as we look, as God calls people, as God chooses people, as God works a work of salvation into his people's lives, those people do respond to the gospel. And Jesus says as he sends these people out, if they don't hear you, you tell them that in the day of judgment it will be better for a group of perverts that tried to sodomize angels than it will be for you who said under the sound of the gospel and did not respond. Very strong language. Very strong language. Jesus was not tiptoeing around the issue at all. And so one that would be faithful to God, faithful to His Word, is a man who will not shy away from the truth of judgment. And then, verse 12, it says, They went out and they preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. There's no way to get around repentance. That kind of goes on, but that kind of goes along with the uh, uh, the judgment uh, that just uh, came up. But there's any time you see uh, 
John the Baptist, you see Jesus, you see the disciples, you'll, you'll read Paul, you'll see their message in Acts, you always see repentance there. If, anyone, if a man will be faithful to the Word and faithful to his people, he's going to be calling them to repentance. Because the truth of the matter is, on a daily basis, we have things we ought to repent of. We have things that we need to repent of. Jesus was not just exaggerating when he said we ought to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow him. What that means is we ought to be repenting and turning to him in faith uh, that's something that he really did mean. But when we get down to the last point here, it says that they cast out many devils, anointed with oil many that were sick, and he healed them. And so the last thing I'm going to say about the man who would be called to minister God's people, not just that, but God's people in general, we're called to have a heart of compassion toward fallen humanity. There's no doubt as the disciples walked with Jesus, as they lived with Jesus, as they listened to Jesus, but especially as they saw his interaction with people, they saw a man whose heart was full of compassion for fallen people. And to take this back on topic, a man who's indifferent and hardened towards sinners is not qualified to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. It's just not. We're faithful to his message, but we're not mad at people for being what we are too. We're faithful to the message, but we're not mad because people are what we already know they are. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Obviously, this is speaking of uh, Jesus here. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When we see this description, we find someone who has been sent to deliver. We find someone who's been sent to heal. We find someone who has been sent to really show compassion on a pitiful people. That pitiful being us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Paul says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance under the acknowledging of the truth. Paul says, Listen, Timothy, the servant of the Lord, someone who would serve the Lord in this capacity, must not strive, but he's got to be gentle unto all men. He's got to be apt to teach. He's got to be patient. He's got to be meek. And so not just the pastor, but also just in the, in, the, in the pew. We've got to be gentle with sinners. We can't be mad at people because they struggle with sin. A lot of times it can come off that way even when we're not. But if we've got some, some personal issues with going out and interacting with sinners, then really we've got some personal issues with grace. Because how could we ever be mad at someone for something that we were until someone else conquered that for us? It just doesn't make any sense. And so a man who's indifferent and hardened is not qualified to be an ambassador of Christ. As I say that, and really as I say all of these things, I'm definitely not saying that when you turn to Mark chapter 6 and you look at uh, verses 7 through um, 13, if a man isn't all of those all the time, then you can just forget it. I am saying this, that those are uh, marks that should characterize someone, and if there are deficiencies in some of those areas, then the man is to be working toward those. Because I'm not all those all the time. As a matter of fact, it took me a while after I started um, after I started preaching to really get to the point to where I was even considering that last point, and that is having a heart of compassion on fallen humanity. Um, 
I'm not saying I'm completely there right now, but you know, I've never had a problem with with uh, with saying what's there. I've never had a problem really with the fear of man, what you thought or what anybody else thought. I could say whatever I needed to say when I needed to say it. My problem is just saying it because I wanted you to do it, not necessarily because I had compassion and 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 saw the message as being from God. And so I say that just to say, I don't say any of this stuff and say everybody has to be all this all the time. I am saying this, if I do not get to the point and did not and continue to want to grow in the idea of being compassionate towards sinners, then eventually I become useless. And so do you. So do you. So I want to encourage you with that uh, portion of Scripture to go back, look over those things. Again, whenever we look at those, we see what Jesus is doing. He's discipling pastors he's discipling his ministers there but not only that uh he's giving us some areas that go and directly relate to the person in the pew as well so let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you lord that you uh give us the ability to understand you give us the ability to uh, know uh, what your will is in uh, so many areas of life I pray that you would continue to be with the church here, that you would uh, build them up. I pray that you would send them a faithful pastor. Um, I pray that you would uh, bless them uh, to strive to grow and to uh, serve you and to love you, uh, and that you would just continue to show them uh, mercy and grace, continue to uphold them and give them endurance. Uh, We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.